and welcome back to Ben Again. I am Marie Bartlett, and I am the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Today, I have with me Adina Langer, the curator for Kennesaw State University's Museum of History and Holocaust Education, located in Kennesaw, Georgia. Thank you so much for being with us today. So happy to be here with you. So could you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the mission of Kennesaw State University's Museum of History and Holocaust Education? Sure. I have been the curator at the Museum of History and Holocaust Education since 2015, um, and I'm responsible for our collections and also for our exhibitions and associated public programming. Um, the Museum of History and Holocaust Education presents public events, exhibits, educational resources, and training uh, rooted in World War II and the Holocaust, as well as the generational shifts that relate to these events. And our primary role is to illuminate the role that individuals play in history and the effects of history on individuals. So our organization got started in 2003 with the hosting of the Anne Frank in the World Traveling Exhibit, which the Kansas State hosted for about three years. And then in 2006, our director, uh, Dr. Catherine Lewis, put together a team to curate our first permanent exhibitions and really launch the museum as it is today. Wonderful. So, could you please inform our listeners a little bit more about the Anne Frank and translation exhibit that you now currently have? Sure. So part of our programming consists of numerous traveling exhibits. These exhibits go to schools, libraries, community centers, other museums, synagogues, churches, et cetera, all across the region. And this exhibit, Anne Frank in Translation, uh, premiered in April of 2021. It is an eight-panel traveling exhibit that explores Anne Frank's legacy, specifically by focusing on the preservation and publication of her diary and the process of commemoration that involved editors, publishers, translators, playwrights, curators, composers, performers, and educators. So the exhibit really looks at how her legacy was not inevitable, but it involved the active engagement with her story by multiple individuals, each one serving as a kind of translator of her story from one context to another, and from generation to generation. As I was researching for this podcast, I was truly surprised by just the sheer amount of things that her diary has inspired to be created. It seemed like right after its publication, there was a stage play, there were numerous movies. I was incredibly fascinated by that. And it it shows just how important her story is. Now, for some of our listeners who might not know much about Anne Frank, could you give us some background information on her? Absolutely. So Anne Frank was born on June 12, uh, 1929, in Frankfurt on Main, Germany. Uh, Her family was a pretty well-to-do Jewish family, deep, deep roots in Germany. But when Hitler came to power 
her father and her mother made the really difficult decision to flee and looked for where they could go, basically. And they were able to essentially move Otto's, Otto's her father, Otto Frank, his business to Amsterdam. And so Anne was still very, very young at this time. So she actually stayed in Aachen, Germany with her grandmother from the summer of 1933 to the winter of 1934, and then joined uh, her sister Margot and her mother and her father in Amsterdam. So pretty much then from 1934 until 1940, she had a relatively normal childhood in this close-knit Jewish refugee community in Amsterdam. But in May of 1940, uh, Germany under Adolf Hitler and the Nazis invaded the Netherlands and everything changed. And it was like in so many places, there were essentially a series of increasingly restrictive laws and ordinances that affected Jewish people living in the Netherlands, ultimately culminating with deportations. And along the way, Anne and her sister had to change schools. They had to go from public schools to Jewish-only schools. There were fewer and fewer places that they could go. There were curfews. But things really came to a head in 1942 when Margot Frank, Anne's older sister, who was 16 at the time, received a telegram saying that she had to go to Germany for labor. And labor, everyone knew that labor was, what was this labor? You, many people were never heard from again. And so this was a very frightening thing for the family. And they had been making preparations for this kind of thing to happen and went into hiding on July 6th of 1942. And so they stayed in this space, which um, is, is known by many as the secret annex. Um, Anne often referred to it as Het Achterhuis, which is the house behind. And it was the space behind her father's uh, jam making business, Opecta, in Amsterdam's market slash warehouse district. And they, they hid there for two years with one other family, as well as one uh, unmarried man and kept their lives a secret for those two years. But unfortunately, on August 4th of 1944, they were arrested. They were betrayed by someone in the community and their space was raided and they were, they were taken to Westerbork four days after they were arrested. And Westerbork was a transit camp in the Netherlands. And then in early September, they were transported to Auschwitz. Ultimately, Anne and her sister Margot died in Bergen-Belsen after they were transported there. They contracted typhus. And the only member of the family, and the only member of the, all those who were in hiding who survived was Otto Frank. Which is just so incredibly sad and all too common of a tragic story during that time period in the Holocaust. So how does Anne Frank's story become published if, you know, she, she dies in, in the concentration camp? How does this story survive? Yeah, so Anne was given a diary for her 13th birthday, and this was right before she went into hiding. And she kept that diary 
very consistently over the course of the two years. And it wasn't just the diary. It was reflections, stories, writings, and wanted to be a writer. She thought of herself as possibly becoming a journalist, becoming uh, someone who traveled all over the world. She wanted her to be known for her writing. And so while she was in hiding, she wrote and she edited and she rewrote and had all of these papers. So when the family was arrested, their helpers, including Neep Gies and Beth Boskiu, they discovered her papers, um, which were not confiscated by the Gestapo. And they saved them. They kept them in a drawer, hoping to give them back to Anne, hoping that she would survive. But of course, she did not. And eventually, when it became clear that she had died, Nipkis gave the diary to Anne's father, Otto. And so he read the diary and he learned so much about his daughter. It's really, you know, every parent has a particular relationship with their child, but there's an entire inner life. And, and this really became quite clear through Anne's writings. And he had the idea that, in part because this was Anne's wish, that he would try to publish her writing. And so he looked for a multiple, he, he shared it with historians, he shared it with friends who had relationships with publishers. And eventually the diary was published in 1947 in Dutch, by a Dutch publisher. So that was its first publication. And this was already, this was an edited version. Otto had gone through and kind of edited it down. But once it was published in Dutch, Otto continued his quest to get the word out essentially. And it was translated first into German and French and published in 1950 and then into English in 1952. And it was really that English translation and especially the exposure to an American audience that launched it in, in the way that you talked about a little bit earlier. It became, it was adapted as, a, as first a stage play and then as a film, and then eventually translated into more than 70 languages. That's a lot of languages. <laughs> Just, you know, even though Anne never got to travel the world, her words did in a sense. So how and why did Anne Frank's diary become such a famous resource on the Holocaust? Yeah, so her story, because it was adapted and adopted and picked up by all of these, these different creative people, and I include translators, you know, in that, in that designation, every time someone sets out to translate someone else's words, they, they form a very particular relationship with the original writer. And this process of trying to fully understand what someone is saying and then move that, move their words into a space where other people can understand them. It's not just linguistic translation, but it's also adaptation. So if you are making a play from somebody's uh, memoir or, or diary, um, you're thinking about how then can actors portray this? And if you're taking the diary and turning it into a graphic novel, for example, which was done very recently with Anne's diary in multiple languages, adaptations for film beyond the original film, an anime film was created in the 1990s and then relaunched and retranslated in 2020. 
And then, of course, the role that museums and exhibitions play. So Otto helped to preserve the secret annex space as he was aging and then ultimately when he died by creating the Anne Frank House Organization. And so they, as along with the Anne Frank Fonz Basel, so they're actually two organizations that are tasked with preserving Anne's legacy. And that includes through educational exhibits and programs all over the world and through just the literal preservation of the story, the artifacts, the publishing rights of this, of the diary, and the process of examining it as a historical artifact. So this piece of knowing exactly what Anne wrote, what was edited, and by whom, and creating a definitive edition of the diary, this became part of the work as well of these commemorative organizations, as well as the Dutch government. So all of this is going on over the course, pretty much from the 1950s to the present. And so with each generation, a new new people are exposed to Anne's story in these different formats. And so I would say that in some ways, it, it's very purposeful. You know, people keep picking it up and moving it into a new context. But it's also because it's already known. It, it's in some ways the sort of self-perpetuating. Well, I know about Anne Frank, but do you know about Anne Frank? You know, what? in what ways do uh, new young people, you know, how might they connect? And the most recent example of this is the Anne Frank House put together a video diary version with a young actor, a young girl in 2020 and launched it on YouTube. So this continues, you know, right up to the present. Well, that's so interesting. Just the, um, you know, it, that would be very interesting just to see like uh, a format, like a video diary that is so common to us today, but would not have been heard of in the, the 1940s. That's so interesting. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what did Anne Frank's diary reveals of public after it was published? I would say first, it revealed that Anne was a talented writer. You know, she's she's this 13-year-old, 13 to 15-year-old girl, and she has a lot of very detailed, thoughtful, frank observations to make about what life is like under these very restrictive circumstances, but also what possibilities there are and hopes there are for the future. So, you know, in a lot of ways, there's an image of Anne as this unrelentingly hopeful figure, which can be something of a, I say this, it can be a limited view of Anne, you know, you, you kind of pick and choose quotes. And a lot of people know the quote, you know, I, I still believe that people are good at heart. Well, when you look at the larger context, she's really wrestling with the darkness of the time that she was living through. And I think that the the way that that resonated for readers, and especially for young readers, so they, they both see her as someone who is relatable, you know, just another teenage girl like themselves, or, you know, if they're for boys as well, it's just this childhood in a really difficult situation. But she's not just always talking about that difficult situation. She's talking about relationships and, you know, difficulties she had with her mother and and her, the ways that she wants to be different 
from her parents and from other people. So all of those themes are really relatable, no matter who you are. So there's this sort of universal element to her story that I think resonates with a lot of people, and especially as it's translated, now people in all different countries and who speak different languages can learn about her life and see themselves in her story to some extent. And she's also telling something very particular. So it becomes, you know, over time that the ways in which her story is unique, I think, have come to be emphasized more. So you both have this universal and this particular sense um, of who Anne is that makes her an interesting figure. Yes, because she's writing about things that, as you said, can kind of be universal, that people can relate to even today, of like just the human experience. But she's also going through a very particular experience and a very particular time and place centered in history. So how do you think that these various interpretations of Anne Frank have impacted discussions of the Holocaust, which of course is the larger context for what she's writing about? Yeah, so I think the evolution of the way that people think about Anne in some ways, you know, has been purposeful in terms of those who have taken it upon themselves to tell her story. So in the beginning, you know, this sense that she was a young girl like everybody else, the, the emphasis was very much on how she was not very different from, from anyone, you know, anyone who lived through a difficult wartime experience could relate to Anne. But over time, there were criticisms, critiques of kind of that interpretation, you know, noting that it's really important to emphasize that she was Jewish and the ways in which she was Jewish made her experience specific and unique. And so that became a bigger part of the story. And then beyond that, over time, there has been more discussion of the ways in which Anne is both emblematic of the Holocaust, because so many people know her story, but also rather unusual. So when you think about Anne as, as someone who whose family not only had a sense for the danger that came with the rise of the Nazi party, but also had the resources to attempt to get out, to, to try to save themselves. This was a tiny percentage, you know, so even beyond that, when you think about the fact that they were German Jews and the German Jews in Germany made up less than 1% of the population. So this is a really tiny tiny group of people who are being scapegoated by the Nazi regime. So a really small minority. But of course, as the Nazi regime gains power and World War II becomes the state of affairs across Europe and they invade Eastern Europe, the situation changes in that there are many, many more Jewish people in Eastern Europe who are now falling under the shadow of the Nazi regime. And their experience is very different from that, even of the German Jews. You know, the German Jews had essentially between 1933 and 1939 as a period of time when the laws were tightening, but they were not subject to the same kinds of complete segregation, deportation, etc. that happened later on. For Eastern European Jews, as soon as the, the Nazis invaded, everything changed for them. 
And that was to some extent, it was true for Anne and her family once the German army and the Nazis invaded the Netherlands, because now they were under occupation. It was very different to be under occupation. And so when you think about that, the experience of the Holocaust that many Jewish families had was much more the displacement from their homes, removal to ghettos, eventual you know, starvation experienced in those ghettos, eventual deportation to labor camps and killing centers you know, in the East, as well as for those who never had that experience and who were systematically targeted by the Einsatzgruppen, who were the special forces that followed the German army as they invaded and went about essentially trying to kill as many Jewish civilians as they could right at the beginning. So when you think about the percentages, Anne's story and her family story is quite, is very much in the minority as compared with the vast um, experience of, of Jewish people during the Holocaust. So a lot of that has kind of come into, in some ways, because Anne's story is so well known, it enables people to open up conversations about other people's experiences that were both similar, but also very different. And that enables those who are learning about the Holocaust to have something, a point of comparison. It's a good entry point, perhaps for Holocaust education and discussion, because people, this has been a story that is, has been around for so long that so many people know it. So if you can think, okay, so here, here's our starting point, but then there's just so much beyond that as well. Absolutely. So Anne Frank's diary is perhaps one of the most famous documentations of the Holocaust. And it's really interesting as well because it's from a point of view of a child. And therefore it makes it different from some other Holocaust literature as well. Now. I was just wondering, are there any other autobiographical sources from children and or teens from this time? Yeah, so there are. And a lot of them have actually been published much more recently than Anne's diary. So that's one of the interesting things about it. For example, in 2019, the diary of a young Polish Jewish Holocaust victim called Renia's diary was published. And so that's sort of an another perspective that in some ways can be compared with Anne's story. There were also poems and magazine articles even that were saved from the Terezin ghetto and concentration camp. Terezin has sort of more than one identity in uh, Czechoslovakia, which were put together into an anthology called I Never Saw Another Butterfly. So that's one that is includes poetry by very young children, as well as observations by teenagers. There were a group of boys at Terezin who put together a zine, a series of zines called Vedem. So there's a new exhibit that's traveling from Vedem Underground, which looks at their story and kind of brings their stories to the surface. Many people know Eli Weisel and his memoir really um, night. So rather than keeping a diary throughout, he wrote his memoir shortly, relatively shortly after liberation and published it in 1960 initially. And he was a Romanian teenager who was imprisoned in Auschwitz and Bruna. 
our museum, you know, we're, we're always looking at local stories and, you know, trying to amplify the voices of Georgia residents or people who eventually came to call Georgia home. So uh, two that we recommend that are memoirs written about life for two individuals who were very young, who were teenagers and very young adults during the Holocaust are Someone Must Survive to Tell the World by Toja Schneider and Sunrays at Midnight by Norbert Friedman. Toja and Norbert, they both died relatively recently, but before that, they were very involved in the Holocaust education community in the Atlanta metro um, and traveled around the state telling their story. So I would also emphasize is it's not just diaries, but also poetry and a Harvest of Blossoms by Selma Mirbaum Eisenker um, is another. She was from Chernovitz, and that's another wonderful anthology that was essentially preserved and then published years later. So to end our podcast today, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your museum and perhaps if they wanted to visit, when could they do that? Absolutely. So um, we are free and open to the public. During primarily regular business hours, 10 to 5 on weekdays, but we do have special programs throughout the year. We have a homeschool program where we invite families to come and learn about particular topics related to our mission. And that happens, I believe, it's usually monthly, you know, throughout the year. We offer free in-school programs for teachers and students, as well as virtual programs for uh educators across the country. And our traveling exhibits and our traveling trunks are available to reserve for free. So you can visit our website. It's a historymuseum.kennesaw.edu. And we also record oral histories. So if there you you know have a, a story to tell that has its roots in the Holocaust or World War II or even just growing up after those events and understanding their impact on your life, we're interested in hearing from you. So please reach out anytime. Thank you so much for being with us today. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.